series on the book of Acts, which, as we have been learning, we is the Pentecostal handbook. That's how we want to approach it as Pentecostal, spirit-filled believers, those who believe that Jesus has promised the gift of the Holy Spirit as empowerment for witness to the ends of the earth. Amen? And so we are seeking to adhere to this lifestyle um, just as the earliest disciples did. Today will be in Acts chapter 3. Some exciting stories to come up here. This is Peter uh, healing the crippled man outside of Solomon's colonnade. I'm excited for the insights that are coming our way this afternoon. Let's welcome our pastor and visionary leader, Joe Irostek. Thank you, my brother, and thank you, Pastor Jared. Open up your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3 is going to get us into the wonderful things of Pentecostal power. We get to see now how the Pentecostals did what God told them to do. These wonderful disciples were commanded by God to go into all the world and preach the gospel and to see these signs follow. And here we go. It's time to see the signs start following the preaching of the gospel. Thank you, good sir. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer, at three in the afternoon. Now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those who were going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Here's some great pictures where we can get inside of the temple known as Herod's temple. So the first temple made by Solomon was destroyed during the Babylonian captivity, but it was rebuilt about 70 years later during the time of um, the return to Jerusalem with Nehemiah and Ezra. And later on, a man named Herod and his family, and there's a bunch of Herods as you read the Bible, they all kind of have the name Herod from that family, Uh, began to make additions to the temple. So this was the temple in the time of Jesus and the temple during the time of the early church. This temple ended up getting destroyed in 70 AD as the Romans sacked Jerusalem, and they became a persecuted group once again. And it was not the land given back to them until 1940s, 1940s, and then Jerusalem specifically into 1960. So I believe that's why we've started the last seconds of the last moment of the last day is because now Jerusalem and Israel is back in the hands of the Israelite people. Here we can see a little bit better of a graphic with description. It may be hard for you to see the writing, but that's why I give you these notes on our app in the website. And basically what it says is that the crippled man was right around here, and he's being carried. So it looks like he's in the motion of being set here, and that's where the conversation actually starts. One of the things that we want to see is that the disciples still went to the temple to pray. The Jewish people had three daily prayers. Those three daily prayers were the traditions that the people set up over time. It was nine in the morning, three in the afternoon, and then at sunset. 
And what we can probably assume is why the disciples would go there is because they were Jews, and there was nothing in their mind to make them want to stop being Jews. So remember, you don't have to renounce Judaism to become a Christian. You just see the fulfillment of Judaism in Christianity. Now, I do think that the temple sacrifices should have stopped at that point because the temple veil was ripped in two from the holy place to the holy of holies. And inside the holy place, when we look at the temple, um, actually what we would call the um, holy place had two sections to it. The most holy place, what we would call the holy of holies, and then the holy place. So the holy place would just be known as the whole thing there. And when you would walk in, you would see the table of showbread, which was 12 loaves of bread representing the 12 tribes of Israel. The menorah, the seven candlesticks, representing the seven manifestations of the things of God burning and lit. And then you would see the altar of incense reminding us that our prayers go before God. And then going into the holy of holy place was the Ark of the Covenant. Now at this time, it was not there. The Ark had not been there since the destruction of Jerusalem and Babylon. So it had not been there. But there still was a veil that separated the two portions of that uh, holy place. And the Bible says when, when Jesus was crucified, it was torn in two. So I believe they still should have honored the temple as the disciples were doing to go there to pray, to go there to teach, and to have their traditions. But the sacrifices should have stopped because as a true Jew, you would have known the temple is no longer needed for sacrifice because Jesus has become our sacrifice. But obviously the Christian group here is a very small group in, in, um, in comparison to the large number of Jews. So probably why they're going there still is to take those opportunities to preach to the Jewish people that were there, knowing that at the prayer times would be the most uh, popular their time of the day to go and preach. And the crippled man asked Peter for money. Now, that's obvious uh, for our days. Uh, we see this all the time. We understand this. This is something that we see beggars do all the time, whether they are crippled or whether they're uh, you know, having drug addictions or just homeless for whatever reason, asking for money. We all can relate to this. I grew up in a small town, though, and never saw this. Okay. Now, there was a scary part of our city that had a downtown, but I didn't go there that much. So I wasn't used to uh, pulling up to a stoplight every day of my life life, seeing one-eyed Willie asking for money. And so for those of you who have grown up with that being a part of your everyday life, I just want to let you know that that's strange to some people. That was very strange for me to see that. And then what may be strange for you is to go to India and actually see the children do that. That would be very strange and very heartbreaking, would it not? Especially the ones that are crippled and are kind of pushing themselves along. They'll have like these knee pads on or something, and they'll push themselves along the ground. It's just absolutely heartbreaking. Well, this was a place that they could go and ask for money, and what better place to be because at least they would find the pious people there, the people who feared God, who wanted to do something good for them. Now let's keep going and see what happens here. Then Peter said, silver and gold, in verse 6, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. So he's thinking he's going to get some money, some shekels, and that's literally the context of shekels. That was the Jewish form of money at that time. And look it up if they were using shekels at that time. That might not have actually been. They might have been using the Roman denarii and all of that. Just see, in the time of Jesus, did they use shekels? But uh, when they were their own nation, they used shekels. And even to this day, double check, do, so do two questions. In the time of Jesus, did they use shekels? And to this day, do they use shekels? I believe that's part of their currency. 
Okay, then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And just text it to me, please, good sir. Talking, uh, taking him by the hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went up with them to the temple, into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Isn't that powerful? This is just something we take for granted now, reading the Bible and knowing this story over and over and over again. But put yourself in their shoes. Put yourself in the shoes of the disciples because that's who you are. You're just going to pray. You know you're filled with the Holy Ghost. And I try, I try to like add a lot of things here to the story, which we don't know for sure. But this might be their first time after the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so there's almost this awkward moment. You know, what are you asking us for money for? We're Christians. We don't have any money, you know. We're disciples of Jesus. We've left everything, you know. I'm not fishing anymore. I'm not making money off this, right? And then they're thinking to themselves, like how I probably would think, should I now pray for this person? Should I now do the miracle? Can you guys all relate to this? It's going to be awkward if it doesn't happen. What should we do? And here Peter steps up, the bold one, the one who before would make a lot of the, the wrong mistakes because of him being too quick to talk or too quick to move on something. But yet God gave him opportunities to learn from those mistakes so we can never put down the Peters. I always told people in Bible college when I was a student, I said, don't get mad at me because I just said what everybody else was thinking. Come on, professor, give me a break, because I know this one tells me the same thing I'm saying at lunch break. They, they're thinking what I'm thinking. They're just afraid to tell you. And so what happens a lot is the ones who are bold are the first to make the mistake, but they're also the ones the first to get the victory. So it's Peter who opens his mouth, and he says, Silver and gold have I none, but what I do have I will give you. Get up in Jesus' name and walk. And I love that at this moment the miracle happens. The confirmation comes. Our God is with us. We're not just charismatic in experience. We're charismatic in practical application. The baptism of the Holy Spirit wasn't just for us to have esoteric experiences of dreams, visions, and tongues. Those are, are, those are great, but it's actually to give us practical power in the application of discipleship and preaching the gospel. Now, at this point, we have to take on the application for ourselves. Will we do this? Will we pray for one-eyed Willie? Will we stop there in Chicago, downtown at, at the Michigan Avenue, and will we pray for the homeless, the sick? Will we go to do the hospital visits and still believe that God can heal? Now, many people say, I've done this and it hasn't worked, so what do we do, Pastor? That's a good question. Well, I have a few answers for you. The first one is a very simple and practical answer. Imagine if you were put into a room, kind of like a test uh, like they do with animals, okay? They, they put a blue button and a red button, and every time the monkey touches the red button, it gets shocked, touches the blue button, a little treat comes out. So they keep touching the blue button, okay? Now imagine we put you in that same kind of test. Every time you touch the red button, though, nothing happens, and 
maybe not every time you touch the blue button, something happens, but let's say every 100 times you touch the blue button, $100 comes out. Would it be worth it for you to push the blue button 100 times? That's the way I want you to understand prayer and miracles. I can't understand why it doesn't always happen, but I know you keep pushing that button, things do happen. So then in practical matters, you can look at the book of Acts and start asking a few questions. Did all of their prayers get answered? It doesn't seem to be so. We know by the time of Paul and some of his epistles, Paul's associates now are sick, and they're not getting healed instantly. Paul's uh, spiritual son, Timothy, is sick. He's telling him to drink wine for his stomach's sake. Wine is good for your digestion. We also know that Paul says, I have to leave Tromephius. Uh, Tromephius, right? Is there an M in his name? Trophius. Look up his name. Is it Trophy, like Trophimus or Trophimus? Trophius. So there is an M in there, Trophimus. Give me his proper name, please, as I get another fun fact from Jared. Jared's helping me as I preach exegetically here. You can't know everything. Isn't it good to have somebody like Jared who can? No, I'm kidding. He knows more than I do in a lot of ways. According to Wikipedia, half shekel was used to pay the temple treasury, and the new shekel has been used in Israel since 1985. So the answer to those questions that uh, they didn't have any shekels would be appropriate. They didn't have any shekels then at that time, and then now they still use shekels in uh, Israel. How would you say his name? Trophimus. Paul says, I left him sick and had to keep going. And then at another point in the book of Philippines, uh, of the, the book of Philip. Uh, the book of Philippians, rather, Filipinos are those who come from the Philippines, which I get confused all the time. One of the things you will notice about me when I come here is I'm not as, as polished as I am on Sundays is because I want it to be more relational and there's no more notes. I mean, it's just really what you see up there. And so what happens is you'll notice my two biggest things are pronouncing words, especially when we get into other languages, and remembering facts and putting them all together. I'll forget things like that all the time. But this is a reminder, if God can use me, he can use you. If God can use me who gets uh, the Philippines confused with Philippians as a master degree doctoral student, God can use you. Amen. And if he has, and if, you, if God can use me, somebody who has to literally stop and ask you how to spell words, like I will stop and be like, how do you spell that word? You know, like peculiar. How do you spell that? Because I just, I don't know. It's just something that doesn't come natural to me. Now, having said all of that, watch this. We know by the time of the uh, Philippians that Paul is saying, if you could, you would take out your own eyes and give them to me. There is a lot of speculation that Paul was at this time going blind and that the thorn in his flesh was this kind of a sickness that was preventing him from being effective in his traveling. So there's a connection there. What he's saying to the Philippians, you would tear out your eyes, you would give them to me if you could. And in the book of Corinthians, he's talking about how he has a thorn in his flesh and it's there to humble him and no matter how much he prays, it doesn't go away. So there's a connection there to Paul himself being sick. So like I said, you have at least two clear examples of the early disciples being sick. Timothy with his stomach problems and Tromephius. Uh, just send me his name. Oh, there, there. Trophimus. Trophimus. Everybody say Trophimus. So it's like the word trophy. Trophimus. It's like Trophimus. Okay, thank you. So here's one of my ideas to this as being a Pentecostal who doesn't see everybody healed. They're maybe not telling us in Acts the times people are not healed. They're only telling us the times people are healed. Now watch this. This is really cool. I want to encourage you with this. If you were to summarize my life into the 
small uh, book of Acts, you could write the same thing about my life and get the impression that I always saw people healed. Because I've seen about 10 miracles. I've seen about maybe 20 demons cast out. I've seen words of wisdom and knowledge and prophecy. And so if you were to reduce Joe's years, let's say, God forbid, I was to pass away now, 20 years of my life, which the book of Acts is about 30 years, so follow me here, and you reduce you know, 20 years of my life to 28 chapters, you may just think Joe's hitting that button every single time. Why? Because that's what you're going to tell about Joe. You're going to say, Joe did this, and tongues were interpreted by somebody from India. And then Joe went over here, and demons were cast out at this crusade. And then Joe prayed for somebody here at the volleyball court, and their wrist was healed. And you know what I'm saying? You're going to tell my story like that, and you may just think, every time I'm hitting that button. So there could just be the high, this could just be in the Pentecostal handbook, the highlight reel of all that happened. Now we will see that it gets even more intense than this. There's more miracles happening to the point where it is breaking out to what we would call like revival. But notice in this situation what you don't hear. You don't hear that there's 10 other people that now get healed. So there could have been other beggars in that same exact place. Just like with the stories of Jesus. Jesus goes to the pool of Bethesda, heals the one. What about the rest? So we don't want to be discouraged by what we don't know about the disciples. We do know there were those that had sicknesses. So Paul's button pressing, uh, prayer pushing button wasn't always pushing out the miracle. Don't be discouraged. Now what the non-Pentecostal will try to tell you is that this was all part of the beginning stages of the church and the miracles went away as the apostles died and the scriptures were written and now this became our tradition and so we need not to ask God to do any of these things. But that is just a fallacy because right at the beginning we see people sick and not everybody getting healed. Like I said with Paul and his epistles. So that doesn't work, but quite the opposite. As the apostles are dying, the church fathers are recording miracles are still happening. So you have to keep stretching that time period. And then what are you to say? The books of the Bible, especially the ones like Corinthians and the latter ending of Mark, and those passages are not our example when Jesus said that was exactly what we were supposed to do was to see the signs follow. What, there's no more demons now because the Bible's written? There's no more healing of the sick. Come on, somebody. And then you may see what I call the spirit light position. They'll say, okay, these Pentecostals got something here. Let's give them a little credit, okay? But it's only going to happen where the gospel's never been preached before. Then we have a need of miracles again to really reiterate the testimony of Jesus Christ and show that he's powerful. But what, there's no demons in America now? Has the gospel been preached to the point where all the demons just went over to the jungles of India? Now, granted, they may not have the same place to be in America that they do in those other places because they may worship those demons. And in some places, when people get so demon-possessed, they treat them as madmen, as we see in the Bible. But that doesn't mean there's not demons here. Does that mean we don't need words of wisdom and knowledge and prophecy here just because we know the gospel? Of course not. Does, does that follow with the New Testament? When they had the gospel and they had the message, did the signs and wonders stop among them? No, we see in Corinthians they already had the gospel. There wasn't a need to reiterate it. It was all uh, to prove it, rather, there was a need to reiterate it. And isn't there a need to reiterate it here? 
Don't we want to see God's power again here? Don't we want to see him reiterate he's still in charge? So I'm going to keep pushing that button even though my batting average, another way to look at it, may be about two or 300. And by the way, in baseball, that's awesome. That means you're missing seven out of the ten pitches. You're coming your way. So still, if you're only hitting three out of the ten, you're an awesome baseball player. And that may be the way it is. And let me give you my last explanation for this. Because ultimately, everybody's got to die anyway. Even though Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, and it was a sign and a wonder, a miracle, Lazarus still died. So there was another time he got sick and everybody prayed and said, don't go, Lazarus, because you're never ready for people to go, right? Come on. You think when you're my age, you may be ready to let go of your parents, but that's not true. And then I looked at people and go, well, maybe when I'm 60, I'll be ready to let go of my parents. And I know that uh, one of my professors, Joanne Miller, lost her mother around 60. And I talked to her about this because she said what I'm saying to you now. And I said, how was it when you lost your mother? She said, I still wasn't ready. It hurts. You don't want to lose somebody. So you want to pray, Lord, keep them here for another year, right? So Lazarus eventually died of a sickness. They all eventually died of a sickness, of the Christians, obviously, who weren't uh, persecuted and murdered. And so the idea is God's in control of human history. Let's not hold on to this life so tight that God can't say it's time to let go. And that's why I believe that we pray for healing, believing it's always God's will, and let him show us otherwise when they die. So let us not come to the sick saying, God, if it's your will to heal. Let's not pray that way. Let us always assume it is God's will because that's what he told us to do was to go pray for them. But when they pass and die, we can go, well, one more prayer. Lord, raise them up from the dead. Because the Bible said to raise the dead as well. Lord, raise them up. Maybe you're not done with them yet. Okay, they're still here. Well, now we know it was God's will. Now, somebody may say, well, Pastor, you've wasted all those prayers. What was the point? You know, you've said all of these things. You get people's hopes up. Well, this is what I tell people. Don't put your hope in me. Put your hope in Jesus, and you'll never be disappointed. Because whether you're healed in this life or the one to come, you're still healed by the stripes of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the life to come will make up for everything you suffered here. So let's just set our eyes on Jesus. There's nothing wrong with ever putting your hope in him. Amen? Another thing that I want to bring up is what happened over the church in time. As the Roman Empire became Christian in the 300s, uh, eventually over the next five, 700 years, Roman Catholicism took over and said, hey, uh, the capital of the Roman Empire is Rome. We might as well make the capital of the church Rome and put the bishop of Rome over all the other bishops. The other bishops really didn't like that. And around, 10, 000, uh, around 1000 AD, there was the great schism where the Eastern Orthodox bishops left the Western church from Constantinople and Rome. There was the divisions of East and West, and you can study that further. But by the time of 1200 A.D. when St. Dominic was in Rome, and you're St. Lawrence, by the way, so never get thrown off by that. Saints are also in heaven, but they have to be first saints on earth. And the only saints you're asked to pray, to, uh, to pray, asked to pray for you are saints on earth, and you're never asked to pray to any living person or any person. It's only God. Okay? So saints, to be a saint in heaven, you have to be a saint on earth first. Somebody put that on Facebook, please. To be a saint in heaven, you have to be a saint on earth first. Number two, the only saints that can pray for you are those who are living, and God never told you to talk to anybody except to him. Amen? Okay, but for the sake of this conversation, I love Ishmael. He always does these things to kind of razzle up the religious people. He'll put up a post, and it will say, Saint Ishmael of Volo. 
Because that's how, if you know the Catholics, it's always very proper to say the saint and then where they're from, you know, saint so-and-so from this location, you know. So when St. Dominic was in Rome, and I love that name, around 1200 A.D., seeking authorization for his order from the Pope, the Pope gave him a tour of the treasures of the Vatican and remarked complacently, referring to Acts 3.6, Peter can no longer say, silver and gold have I none. Dominic turned and looked straight at the Pope and said, no, and neither can he say, rise and walk. Does everybody get that? See what happened? The church traded over time the power of this world, notoriety with men, its riches for the power of God. Remember Paul prophesied this in his epistles. There will come a time when people will have the form of godliness, but they will deny the power thereof, have nothing to do with those kind of people. We need to be Christians that walk in Pentecostal power. You'll get 100% of the prayers you don't pray unanswered. But how many percent of the prayers you pray you will get answered? Only God knows. Get to praying. Get to being bold in your faith. You say, what if it doesn't happen? What if it does? Is it worth it? Is it worth it? Yes, it is. And as a matter of fact, most of the time we're in these positions. Aren't we praying for the lost anyway? Aren't we at the hospital there praying for the lost? Now, you may be praying for a brother or sister, but if, you know, as I've been called, and it's pray for my relative, pray for this person, you know. Come on, what bad could ever come out of believing in a God of miracles? And then you can use it as opportunity to preach the gospel. Peter was living the command of Jesus as in Matthew 10, 8. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, now freely give. That's why I'm always cautious of somebody that said, God told me that I got to give you this. You know, they'll say these things on Facebook. God gave me a word for you, and it only cost $10.99 to get the book, the word that God gave gave me for you. Anytime you attach money to what you say God has said, I know you're already in the wrong. Now, can God call us to go to Bible college and do things with our money for his good? Absolutely. But there will be nothing ever attached to your godliness, to your living for Jesus, for the power of the Holy Spirit that's ever attached to this. Now, generosity will play a part of how God flows through you. And I oftentimes see that some of the most powerfully gifted Christians are also some of the most generous, looking to people like Lester Sumrall, such a generous man, a giver, who always had his heart on the mission field, was used by God in mighty ways, and yet he was very generous. So I do see a connection there. So freely they received all of these things. Freely give those things away. That's why they said, silver and gold have we none. So rise up, get up and walk in Jesus' name. What we have, we give you. Now in the American church, we do have both. We have finances and we have the power of God. Let us use our finances. And in other places, we've already read that they did too. And they gave it to the church to do charity, to take care of the widows. Let us give charitably as, as often as the Lord leads us. But let us never neglect the power of the gospel. I noticed a trend over time, and I think Jared's generation can attest to this, that mission trips began to shift from going to preach in Guatemala, going to preach in Africa, to going to dig wells, going to build houses, to do the relief work for the hurricanes. My friends, that's not biblical mission work. 
That is charitable work done in the name of Christ. But that is not the mission that Jesus said was the Great Commission. The Great Commission is not attached to me building a water well so that you'll listen to me preach to you about the gospel. When we are like the Good Samaritan, we do it with the Christian witness, but we're not disappointed if they don't let us preach to them. When the Good Samaritan paid for the man, put him in the end, he said, that is what is right to do. I did what was right. He didn't say it was based upon me now preaching to him. He didn't say to him, I'm going to put you up in this end, but before you do, I've got to preach to you. If not, I'm leaving you here. And I think about a lot of the outreaches that I used to do that were very similar to this, and I won't name their names, but they're still popular to this day. Well, they'll say, hey, we're going to do the haircuts. We're going to do the doctor uh, checkups. We're going to do the food and the grocery giveaway, and here's the line. And if you want to go to the haircut, you've got to go through the gospel tent first. Has anybody seen anything like that? You've got to go through the gospel tent, then you go to the other things. How, how open do you think people are in that gospel? gospel tent. I mean, really. Just give me the gospel. Come on. Now, can God use it? Yes, he can. But isn't that a bit manipulative? And so we do get a bad name and a bad rep overseas for doing those kinds of things. Now, granted, the ones that usually say that to us do absolutely nothing for their own people, like the Muslims and the Hindus, and they say we bribe them into the Christian faith. But it's like, we wouldn't have to be here if you did something for your own people. Hey, at least we're helping them, okay? The untouchables in India, the, the villagers of Ethiopia who are left to starve and die because they won't convert. Are you listening? So let them not make this something that's anti-God. No, it's just are we doing it the way God told us to do it? We go to do charitable work. We ought to call that charitable work, and we do it in the name of Christ. And here is our local church. Come by and visit us. We ought not to try to bribe them for it. And that's why even in our church, when we do the iPad giveaways and all of that, we're trying to give the people the understanding of this is what we would do even if you weren't here today. So I've talked to my children as how to do children's ministry, and I talked to our youth and how to do youth ministry. My children, during the time of Halloween, want to dress up. That's fun for them. They want to have a bounce house. They want to do those things. Well, let them come and do it along with their friends. And they love when they get the chance to win things. That's exciting for them. But that, to me, is not a win for the gospel because let's just be real. Bigger bounce house, more people. Bigger prizes, more people. Let me just put on there, I'm giving away $1,000, and I'll set a new record for my Wednesday outreach. Come on, are you guys understanding what I'm saying? Let us give away 10 laptops instead of 5 laptops. Let's, let us give away Apple iPads. Put it on the flyer. I mean, the bigger the giveaway, the bigger the crowd. How much money do you have? If I had $100,000, I could fill up Wrigley Stadium, Wrigley Field. I mean, I've seen it done. It's not hard. $100,000 worth of giveaways. You know what I've seen churches do? It's like I said, it's not hard. What would I do? Buy a $35,000 car, raffle off a car, raffle off a motorcycle, bring in the newsboys, whatever big bands is out there, put it on K-Love, because I got a $100,000 budget. So is it any surprise now when I have 15,000 people show up to the stadium? No, you're giving away a $35,000 car. You have the newsboys. You have DC Talk. K-Love put it on the radio. 
So let's be honest when we do those kinds of things. Are they sinful? No, I used to think they were at one point because I went from doing them to thinking they were sinful to now understanding it's not sinful. It's just not what the, the apostles did. So let's make differentiations, okay? Pentecostal power is not dependent upon us having the bouncy house to draw the crowd. If you've drawn the crowd because of the bouncy house or the Easter egg drop from the helicopter, let's just call it what it is. You did a community event. That means you too could do the same exact thing and it not be attributed to the power of God. Does everybody get that? Toys for Tots does the same exact thing. The crowd is not a symbol of the blessing of God. Toys for Tots has 20,000 people come to the stadiums of cities. When they show up, they have the Marines hand out the gifts. There's nothing spiritual about that. Do you get that? Okay, now Christians do all things spiritual, but once again, we're not calling the crowd the blessing of the Lord. Amen? Can I get an amen? Because what we are to do first and foremost is preach the gospel with signs following. And just see that command once again, Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16 gives us Jesus' clear command. And okay, and I'll be a little sassy for you because I know you guys like it. Okay, we call this throwing out the red meat here a little bit. He said to them, go into all the world and give away toys. He said, go into all the world and have hot dog eating contests and costume parties and Christian concerts. Is that what he says? Go into all the world and have Lecrae and Andy Minio perform. Is that what he says? Nothing wrong with Christian hip-hop, nothing wrong with rap, nothing wrong with any of those things. But he said, go into all the world and what? Preach the gospel to all creation. There is the command. That's what Peter and John did. So by having the right mindset, they could have faith in God's word for God to do what only he can do. And he said, these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They will drive out demons. So this is parts, supposed to be a part of our life. Excuse me. They will speak in new tongues. Check. They will pick up snakes with their hands, and whoever drinks deadly poison shall not hurt them. Check. We're invincible until God says it's time to go home. So don't be afraid, and if we die, we go to heaven anyway. They'll place their hands on the sick, sick people, and they will get well. Check. After the Lord had spoken, the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven, sat down at the right hand of God. Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere, and the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied them. I know you notice that that's italicized because some uh, of the older manuscripts don't contain that portion, but I believe the more reliable manuscripts are in the majority text. So let us do what Peter and John did. Now watch what happens here in verse 11. While the man held on to Peter and John, couldn't let him go, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's, uh, Solomon's Colonnade. And let's go here to get an idea of where the, uh, Solomon's Colonnade was, basically where you see the colonnades right around the picture there. So it was the porch area, also known as Solomon's Porch, uh, there on the outside. Like I said, only the priests and so forth could be there on the inside doing their sacrifices all right here. This is where the Jewish people could be walking around. And then as we look at the other picture, on the outside of all of that is where the Gentiles could be. Okay? And so they're about ready to go into the, the court. Uh, man, the party starts. Everything's going on. They're uh, running up into these colonnade areas, and then everything is going on around that section right there. And there, like I said, there would probably be another outer court wall right there with the Gentiles court as we see 
here is there there is an outer court wall there with the Gentiles. Okay, so that's where the party starts going down. This guy's excited. He just got boom shakalaka. He's walking for the first time probably in his whole life. Uh, when Peter saw this, verse 12, he said to them, so he sees the crowd, and what is any good preacher going to do when he sees the crowd? He's going to start preaching. Fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Now pause right here. Where did Jesus say the gospel would go first? The power of the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Where? Jerusalem. So that's where they have to go first. Here it is happening. Where's it going to be next? Judea. We'll see that happening next. Uh, in the next few chapters, but it, it will happen chronologically there to Samaria and the other parts of the world. He, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we made this man walk? Now stop right here and understand this while you're fasting. Fasting does not get you more power with God. Living holy does not get you more power with God. It enables you to hear God better when you pray and fast. It enables you to have the power flow through you. But you are never responsible for what God does through you. I don't care how holy you're living. I don't care how many days you're fasting, okay? Now, somebody may bring up to you a passage of Scripture that says, this kind only comes out with prayer and fasting. When he cast out the demons and the disciples asked, why couldn't he out of that little boy that threw himself into the fire? There's two explanations. One, if we take the majority text on that position and be consistent, then we would say the prayer and fasting is the connection we have to God, and the disciples had not yet had that because fasting is never related to a power meter in the Bible. Like fast 10 days, boop, 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 boop. You get this much power. You can cast out demons that are this big, boop, 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 boop. But if you go to level 20, boom, boom. Beep. Now you can battle the Pokemon demons that are level 20. Boop, boop, boop. You know what I'm saying? But if you're a level 10 and you meet a level 20 demon, you get crushed. So it's not that. It's either, yeah, it's either A, this is simply referring to the connection a person has to God, or B, it's a variant and should not have been in there. It was added later as a re-emphasis of prayer. One way or the other, we never see the connection of anything you do in godliness or anything you do in holiness to be responsible for power. Power is based upon your faith in Jesus. And that is why sometimes I have seen unholy people still be uh, operational in the ministry. And is that not what Jesus says? Many will say, in your name we cast out demons. In your name we did all of those things. But he'll say, I never knew you. Now, the seven sons of Sceva couldn't cast out demons, and they get attacked in the book of Acts because they were saying in the name of so-and-so, that, in the name of Jesus that Paul preaches about. So they had no real understanding of it. But I think the one that Jesus is talking about that could cast out demons in his name is the backslider. And then people ask me, how could there be the never there? I never knew you. Well, because the Bible says in Ezekiel, when the righteous person turns from their righteous deeds and does wickedness, none of the righteous deeds they did before will be remembered. That's why we're to warn people in sin who are you know, Christians, don't do that because nothing will be remembered on the day of judgment. And we in the computer generation can understand what it means to never have something come back up on a computer that used to have something. Come on, can I hear an amen? That was supposed to be there. Where did it go? It was there. I know it was there. I knew it was there. It's not there now. What accidentally did I hit? Now with the iCloud on my Apple, everything sinks and sometimes something gets lost. Where did it go? I don't know, you know. Where is the cloud? Does anybody know where the cloud is? Isn't that something how technology works? That's why I say the Holy Spirit's the Wi-Fi of heaven. 
And didn't Jesus use that as an example? Maybe not a cloud, but of wind. You don't see where the wind goes, but you feel it, and you can see its effect on the trees and the branches. The Holy Spirit's the same way. And now with us, with radio waves and Wi-Fi waves, we understand that not everything is about what we can see. There are things we can't see that can affect the real world around us. And so I believe the power of God can affect this entire world, even more so than Wi-Fi, even more so than radio waves. Amen? Because they have some of those radio waves they'll send out to disperse crowds. You know, send out the waves and make you want to run away. You know, the, the, the sound of that. And just the same thing like a dog whistle. You can't hear it, but a dog can hear it on a certain level. That's another thing right here. Can you hear the sound of the spirit? The spirit. Do you have spiritual ears? And they just go old school with you. Do you have a heart to hear what God is saying? Isn't that what Jesus used to say? They have ears, but they don't hear. They have eyes, but they don't see. Why is that? Because they were watching and hearing the whole entire gospel, but they couldn't see it. But God was saying, blessed are those who can see. Blessed are those who can hear. Amen? And so there was nothing to do with their own power of godliness that made that person walk. Verse 13, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. Notice he's putting it all back on them. And we need to preach that same way. Chicago, you are violent. Chicago, you are perverse. We speak in generalities that way. And then at the same time, we can repent, as Daniel did. I am a part of a wicked generation, so Lord, forgive us. Forgive us. Change us. Have mercy on us. Amen. That was the prayer of Jeremiah and Daniel. You disown, look at verse 14, the holy and righteous one, and ask that a murderer be released to you. You killed, verse 15, the author of life. Let that blow your mind for a little bit. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong, it is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him as you can all see. One of the things that you notice is that a crowd is drawn here because of the miracle I like what John Wesley said, I want God to set me on fire so the world will watch me burn. Don't let people tell you the miracle time is over. It's still a part of this generation. God's Spirit is here. As many as whom our Lord, our God, will call, He will pour out His Spirit on those all. Amen. And I'll tell you what, people are still the same. They will come and gather around. They'll, they'll interrupt what they're doing on Bourbon Street. They'll come around your job. I'm telling you, let God use you wherever you're at, and people will come and then preach the gospel. Let God use you to preach the gospel through the signs and wonders. What we notice in verse 15 is one of those little hidden treasures that I hope that you guys learn to discover in the Bible of the divinity of Jesus. He's called the author of life. We know this is true because all the disciples testified to this. But isn't it wonderful that we see the second sermon, the second sermon here Peter is clearly telling us Jesus is God. The Jehovah Witness is left with a problem here because now they have to say that two people give us life. God gives us life, and a second creature, Archangel Michael, gives us life, known as Jesus, because that's what they believe Jesus was. He was first the Archangel Michael created, was a messenger angel, and then was given flesh at the incarnation, if you want to know their specific doctrine. But look what Jesus said about himself in John 5, 26. I love this. It's not either or because they may say to you, well, which one is it then? Is it the Father gives life or is it Jesus? And we say both because there's only one God. And guess who else gives life? The Holy Spirit. 
Because what is born of the Spirit is spirit. For as this Father has life in himself, so has he granted the Son also have life in himself. Now at this point, people always go back and say, how could Jesus be God if he's granted stuff by the Father? And this is where we go to the Nicene Creed and things like that. That was written in 325 AD, and it shows the reflection of doctrines we've had from the beginning, even as you can see here in the book of Acts. And that is the eternal subordination of the Son. The Son has always been under the Father. As long as there has been the Father, there has been the Son, and the Son has always submitted to the Father. But just because I grant things to my wife doesn't mean I'm of a different nature than my wife. Just because I grant things to my children doesn't make me a different nature. But what you have to deal with, which the Muslim, the Jehovah Witness, every anti-Trinitarian belief system out there has to deal with is how in the world does the Father and the Son both have life in themselves, and yet there's only one God, and the Spirit does as well. There is only one solution. There are three divine persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that share equally the nature of God, equally Yahweh. Not three Yahwehs, not three gods, but three persons who are equally Yahweh, our great God and Savior. Amen? The author of life. And we see in the beginning was the Word in John 1.1. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Verse 3, through Him all things were made. How many things were made through Jesus? All things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. Has anything been made outside of Jesus' creative power? No, nothing, nothing. So when you talk to a Jehovah Witness or a Muslim or anyone, just put two, put one line in two categories, things made, unmade. According to the book of John, who makes everything? Jesus. Okay? Can Jesus then be a made thing? No, everything else goes on the other side. Do you get it? You put Jesus on the side of unmade, the maker, the creator is the uncreated creator. Is everybody with me? Who else do you put there? The Father is uncreator, the creator, right? The uncreated creator. Who else do you put there? The Spirit, uncreated creator. You look through the Bible, you will see three distinct persons being the uncreated creator. Can you put anything else on the uncreated creator side other than the Father, Son, Holy Spirit? No. So on the other side, everything else, what goes there? Angels, human beings, creation, the universe, heaven itself, thrones. Are you with me? So can Jesus be a created thing? No, because through him all things were made. What will they say? Through him all other things were made. So first he was made, then all other things, but it doesn't say that. Liar, liar, pants on fire. Read the Bible and it will teach you something. Amen? In him was life. Woo, snap. And that life was the light of all mankind. That light was the light, that life was the light of all mankind, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus breathed into us the Holy Spirit and gave us life. So they crucified the author of life. And then some people will say, Well, then how could God die? How could you kill God? Could you ever kill God? Because he would stop being God. And then we asked them, When you kill flesh, do you die? We say the body dies, but does your spirit die when you kill flesh? No, anybody who believes in an immortal soul believes when the body dies, you've done nothing to the soul. When they killed his body, they did nothing to the son. The son, the eternal God, lives on after his body. He was conscious. Are you listening to me? And so are you. So they didn't kill God. They killed the body that God had taken. 
And so technically you could say by him doing that they killed God, but not God in his divine nature, no more than they can kill you. In your solical nature, the Bible says it's better for you to lose limbs and go to heaven than to have all your limbs and go to hell because you should fear God who can destroy both body and what? Soul in hell, body and soul. As we like to say, the soul of Jesus was the divine. And it was the body that was of flesh. But it's a little bit deeper than that because he also took on the mind of a man. That's why he said, not my will, but your will be done. And that's another discussion on how Jesus intermingled with humanity. But that's no more different than how humanity can now have the mind of Christ. As the mind of Christ took on a mind of man, the mind of man can take on the mind of Christ. Please put that on Facebook, Lawrence. Tag me in it. Don't be taking all that credit for yourself. But you know what? It was freely given. I got to freely give it now. I don't take credit either. Amen. In the last few verses, he says, Now, fellow Israelites, I know you acted in ignorance as your leaders did. Does that sound just like Jesus? Forgive them, for they know not what they do. We'll see at the stoning of Stephen, he says the same thing. Forgive them. Because, by the way, the Jews get rebuked for about the next four or five chapters, and they start beating us. So they don't like what they start to hear. They, they start getting upset with this preaching. But we're patient and kind to them. Amen? I know that. Can I hear an amen? Thank you. I know that. You acted in ignorance, as did your ancestors. But this is how God fulfilled what, had, what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that the Messiah would suffer. Repent then, turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, that the times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah, who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet, like me among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from the people. What we see in verse 17 is when he said, it talks about the suffering of the servant. Remember, they didn't see a suffering servant. They only saw a conquering king. But Jesus came to conquer our hearts before he came to conquer the world. And think about this. For those 40 days, Jesus was with the disciples. He's probably showing them all these scriptures now they're referring to. Because Peter's referring to the scriptures of the suffering servant in Isaiah chapter 53. Then he tells them how they ought to be saved. Repent, turn to God. And then what will happen when they repent and turn to God? Their sins will be wiped out. Times of refreshing will come. And the Messiah, Jesus, will come back. So what's one of Jesus' promises that once we do these things, he'll come back? The gospel being preached to all the world. It's actually a sign of the end time. So when you see the gospel spreading and the gospel going further and further, the more people, we know we're getting to the time of the end. So there's actually a partnership between us and Jesus and his second coming. Peter then told them that Jesus was being held up in heaven until this appointed time that everything the prophets had talked about comes to pass. What are the things that the prophets were talking about? The prophets of, like the prophecies of Joel chapter 2, that, that the Holy Spirit will be poured out on all flesh, all tribes, all nations, sons and daughters, old and young. Jesus said, make disciples of the nations. Can I hear an amen? Is Jesus going to come back before the nations are discipled? I don't believe so. That's why in my eschatology, the disciples are, or the nations are discipled. Then he comes back, and then catastrophe happens through the Antichrist and all of that. But I believe we go out with a global, powerful church. That's my personal belief. And can I go wrong believing that, believing that God will save the nations? No. Now, some people may say, well, you may get disappointed when they start killing you a lot earlier than you think. And I'll, fine, I'll take it. But they were killing them, and they still believed for global discipleship, right? The disciples never stopped believing that. 
Peter quoted Deuteronomy 18.15 that Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you and the fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. Now think about this when you read the book of Hebrews. Very important to understand Hebrews as relates to Jesus. Jesus was a Hebrew. He was an Israelite. He was from the tribe of David. Uh, excuse me, the tribe of uh, Judah, of the lineage of David, and he fulfills everything Moses couldn't and takes it to a whole nother level. So he doesn't break the law of Moses, he fulfills the law of Moses. He doesn't go back and say second grade is bad, he just says let's get past second grade and go on to the next level. Literally, Paul calls the Old Testament a tutor for the new covenant. It's a tutor for the new covenant. Second grade's cool, but you don't want to stay there, you want to get to college. The new covenant of Christ is the college level of spirituality. So look at Jesus and look at Moses. You can do the same thing with David, by the way, because this is going to come up next. But Moses was spared from a genocide of someone trying to kill all the children. Jesus spared from a genocide of someone trying to kill all the children. Moses is brought up in another land that is not his own. Jesus comes incarnated into flesh, which was not where he had come from in sense. Heaven. Heaven was his kingdom. Moses then grows up and makes a whole bunch of mistakes and does a bunch of stupid things. That's not by you know, murdering an Egyptian. That's not relatable to Jesus. Jesus always pleased the Father, was perfect in every way. But Jesus gets a new covenant to enact that Moses got a covenant to enact with a temple and with sacrifice and laws. And Jesus does the exact same thing. Jesus gets the temple to move into people's heart via the Holy Spirit and rebirth. He gives the law, his new commandments, and then he restates everything that is of the moral and of the code of the Bible that came from the beginning all the way through Abraham and Moses, which is what now is for all the nations. The Jewish people had to keep 613 laws just for them, but now God simplifies it for the whole world, basically summarizing all of it, loving God, loving people, okay? So Moses has a covenant. Moses has a law, sacrifice, temple. Jesus has a covenant, sacrifice, temple, a law. Do you get it? This is the identical one that Moses was saying, someone will come like me. Muslims try to say this is a prophecy of Muhammad, but every possible way, it is false. Every possible way. First off, is is Muhammad from the lineage of the Israelites? No, uh, you can't even apply for the job. Seriously, you can't even apply. You've got to be an Israelite. Everything else then is totally opposite. Does he enact a new covenant? Does he get law? Does he have signs and wonders? Does he bring forth a, a fulfillment of sacrifice, a fulfillment of anything for that matter? No, 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 no. What is wrong with you? You were a false prophet lied by demons, lied to by demons. But here's what they have to believe, by the way, that there's a prophecy of Muhammad in the Torah and in the Injil. And so who do they point to in the Injil as a prophecy of Muhammad, just as redonkulous, the Holy Spirit? And, and John 14, 16, you know, it says he's going to send the Holy Spirit. And it's like a comforter. That's Muhammad. Oh, really? Muhammad's going to live in the heart of every single person and speak on behalf of Jesus? Come on now. The Holy Spirit lives in the heart of every believer and speaks on behalf of Jesus. Let's be honest. You can't find any prophecy in the Injil and the Torah. But your lying prophet said you had to, and so you try to go find them, but you end up making yourself look foolish every time you do. But then out the other side of your mouth, you want to say our Bible's corrupt. Which one is it? You say it's got to have prophecies, but then you say it's corrupt. And then a smart Muslim will say, the ones that had our prophecies about Muhammad, that's the part that corrupts. It's not there anymore. And then we go, but we got the entire Bible from before Muhammad in museums right now, around 300 A.D. Muhammad wasn't alive to 700 A.D. You can't go there either. We call this the Quranic dilemma. If the Bible is right, they're wrong. If the Bible is wrong, they're still wrong. 
Because in their book, it tells them to go back and check the Bible. Do you understand? And we have the Bible in our museum. So any way you go, they're wrong. The Christian is right. Amen. Believe the Bible in Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophecy. In closing, indeed, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets who have spoken have foretold these days. And you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples. How many peoples? All peoples. Latino peoples, European peoples, African peoples, Asian peoples. Middle Eastern peoples, island peoples, amen, all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each one of you from your wicked way. So God was faithful to send it to the Jewish people first, but they ain't going to want it. Some will, but not a lot will. And in chapter 4, they start getting really mad at him, start wanting to persecute him. But what I love here is that Jesus explained these things to them. And I show you in Luke 24, who's the author of Acts? Who's the author of Acts? Luke. So Luke 24, same author, verse 24 and 25, shows us how Jesus walked with these disciples and explained to them. He said, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to him, to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Isn't that awesome? Jesus did a Bible study with these guys and explained it all to them. That's now what Peter is preaching to them, saying, we knew this, but we missed it. It went over everybody's head. When he refers to Samuel, what do you think he's talking about there? The Davidic king. So remember, Moses is a key figure representing law. David's representing king. Jesus is a prophet like Moses, and he's a king like David. Boom shakalaka. Come on, get it like that, right? So David is promised then once again after he's anointed king by Samuel, but in the book of 2 Samuel, which would be normal for them to call it Samuel anyway, but you know, depending on what he's referring to there, either Samuel anointing David in the Davidic line starting or the book of Samuel having Nathan's prophecy, which says this to David, the Lord declares to you, Nathan speaking to David, that the Lord himself will establish a house for you when your days are over and you will rest with your ancestors. I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. You, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his king. And it talks about it going on forever. I cut it off right there. Um, But the kingdom will go on forever and continue to be established in his name. He'll always have someone ruling on the throne of David. That was promised by Nathan. And then we're given the promise of Abraham. So, I mean, really, you tie it all together uh, in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Abraham, Moses, and David, you don't have any greater people in the Bible. And all of this is fulfilled in Jesus. And so I got a last question I want to ask you in closing. God is always ready to save, heal, and deliver. Are you? Let us pray. Father, I thank you today for teaching us how you move by your spirit through the disciples who are at work in your name preaching your gospel. May we continue to do what they did so we can see what they saw. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen. Let's give it up for Jesus. Amen. Thank you.